Then. Good evening, everybody. I'm Patricia Duff. Um, I just want to first recognize our amazing, amazing host, Fern Hurst. And Peter Rubin. <laughs> she has removed almost all the furniture in here to um, to move everybody in, and so we're very, very grateful. She's done so many things for the common good, and she also, very, very importantly, has helped. Her big thing is to help women get into office. So thank you, Democratic women. Um, all right, we'll take that. Big D. Um, but as most of you already know, many of you um, are familiar with the Common Good, but for those who are not familiar with us, what we do is say that democracy is not a spectator sport. It is on us. It is on all of us. It is about each of us making whatever contribution we can to making this a more perfect union. And now, tonight, we have um, a fantastic speaker. Um, who I had the great pleasure to meet decades ago and for many years I thought, and I know a lot of people thought that Larry Tribe would serve on the Supreme Court um, and he certainly deserved to. Um, he is one of the nation's greatest constitutional minds alive today and we are really fortunate to have him tonight at this very, very timely moment in our nation's history. As democracies around the world are under assault and under attack, one of the things that we need to preserve is the rule of law and um, oversight over our government. Um, so we're going to be very, very curious to hear what Larry has to say about uh, the rule of law, about the uh, issues that are going to come up under our new Supreme Court about, um, of course, the investigations that are going forward uh, from Mueller to um, in the House. Um, and we are so lucky tonight. We have a very, very special moderator. Um, he has been a, um, a guest speaker of ours um, with his first big, big book, Game Change, an astoundingly great book and a terrific uh, film as well. Um, and he is just an, a, a brilliant uh, political strategist and political analyst. So we're very lucky to have from the circus um, John Heileman. And with that, I will let John Heileman take it away. Thank you. Uh, Patricia, thank you for that kind, generous introduction. You read it pretty much like I wrote it, so I appreciate that. Um, I just, um, it, it's great to see all you, the, the really packed house here tonight, and obviously, like everyone else in America, you are uh, trying to figure out some pretty fundamental things like, is the country going to survive? Are we all going to be okay? We'll get to those questions a little later. Um, but before we start, I just, I'm always interested in trying to figure out who is in a room before I talk to them, or more importantly, uh, question very brilliant Larry Tribe, who wrote a book once called God Save This Honorable Court. The fact that Larry Tribe is not on that court is a sign that God was not listening. Um, but I, I do want to ask everybody, just for a show of hands real quick, um, if you, uh, I'm going to ask you about your political affiliation, if you feel weird putting your hand up in front of your uh, colleagues, your friends, your cohort here, just close your eyes and your embarrassment will go away. So how many people in the room uh, voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016? 
How many people in the room voted for Donald Trump? All right, one. So um, by the standards of uh, the Upper East Side of Manhattan, this is a remarkably ideologically diverse crowd. Um, <laughs> Um, and sir, I have, uh, I, have, I, have I have security for you to help you get out later, um, if, if, necess if necessary. Yeah, you, you, you will. Um, so let's dive right in. And I, we're going to talk about a lot of different things uh, that are specialties of uh, Professor Tribes. But I, just because we live in such a news-drenched time, I think we should at least start with this question in this kind of remarkable, extraordinary week um, that is unlike so many weeks in the Trump uh, administration, the Trump era, where we see things that we never thought we'd see. Uh, we yesterday saw Michael Cohen uh, really captivate the eyes of millions of people across the country uh, listening to him say extraordinarily harsh things about the President of the United States and his former patron, boss, and friend. Um, to what end and of what consequence, Larry Tribe, will do? Is this a moment that matters or just a television spectacle? Well, John, before I try to answer that question, I want to thank you for agreeing to be the interlocutor. I love your work on MSNBC and on Showtime, and you're a terrific journalist and obviously a thinker, which is not necessarily true of everyone in your profession, uh, or in mine, the legal profession either. I also want to thank Fern Hurst and Peter Rubin for hosting this event, and especially Patricia Duff for inviting me to speak with all of you. Um, and having said that, I want to thank all of you for being here and agreeing to sort of pack yourselves in like sardines. I, I'm sorry. I hope you're comfortable. Um, and I'll try to be brief in my answers. Now, the question, I think, was uh, what do we make of yesterday? Was it a big deal? Was it of lasting legal and political consequence or a just another spectacle of the Trump age? Well, I think it was mostly just another spectacle. But I think there were moments in it that were of lasting consequence. I think having the visual of that check signed by Donald J. Trump from the Oval Office as a conspicuous example, not dependent really on Michael Cohen's tattered credibility, but a dramatic visual example of how the conspiracy to violate the federal election laws in order to become president by hiding what could have been very damaging information from the American electorate shortly before the election of November 2016 how that conspiracy didn't stop when he became president, but extended seamlessly into the presidency. Uh, there were other moments of some consequence. The quite plausible overhearing of Roger Stone telling Donald Trump before he became president about the WikiLeaks dump, connecting that, of course, with the public call on Russia. Russia, if you're listening, We'd like to see those 30,000 missing emails. Um, there were other moments like that, which I think will be dots that will get increasingly connected as the Democratic, with a capital D, uh, House of Representatives holds hearings in at least five different committees. What Michael Cohen said yesterday provides a roadmap to additional people who will have to be called, Alan Weisselberg and others. Um, it's going to be act one of 
maybe dozens of acts, they're going to last. They don't depend on the Mueller report, whatever it's going to contain, and however much of it will become public. And so we are beginning a kind of roller coaster ride of, of dramatic factual revelations, some of which will already have been known to the Southern District of New York or to the Mueller Office of Special Counsel, uh, but very little of which will have really sunk in in terms of the American public's consciousness, which has been anesthetized and dulled by shiny objects and by an ongoing avalanche of conduct that we would never have imagined in an American president. And the danger is that that anesthetization and that dulling effect will make it very hard for the popular imagination to sort of catch up with what we've got going on in the Oval Office. And until there is a public revulsion, not simply among people like most of those in this room, but by people who voted for Trump and people who willingly took a gamble on this guy, until there is great revulsion in that community, uh, we are stuck with what we've got and we have to make do with some pretty rickety legal safeguards. <laughs> So uh, we were talking about this a little before uh, the event started here tonight, and one of the things I've found most fascinating over the last two years since Trump came into office is the degree to which um, issues that, um, if you sat in Larry Tribe's con law class, as I did in 1989, I believe, which is a long time ago. Um, uh, that, was, that was the year Barack was in the class. That is correct. Did you hear him make comments in that, class? That is correct, yes. Wow. Do you remember his comments? I, I, no, I remember him bumming a smoke from me the first time I ever <laughs> met him. <laughs> you know, I and looking at him and saying, you're going to be the first black president of the United States. <laughs> yeah, yes, you're going to have a Marlboro Light. Um, this is the first time I ever knew that you sat into that in that class. I, the, yes, that is. A, I wow. We've discussed, I think, the time frame, but not necessarily the year. In any case, for people who took those <laughs> classes, um, we had very interesting theoretical discussions about questions like whether a sitting president could be indicted, whether a president could pa pardon himself. Uh, now those questions are of great moment, practical moment. So I want to just, because I think they are such, of such practical moment and, and could be, rubber could be meeting road relatively soon, I'd like to, I think people would be, would be helped by hearing your views. So let's start with this first question, especially in the context of what we saw yesterday the spectacle of a piece of evidence suggesting that a sitting president not just is potentially a criminal, but someone who committed crimes, conspiracies, while he was in the Oval Office. Um, can that guy be indicted or not? Well, in my view, there's nothing in the Constitution or in the American system of government or in our traditions or in our history or in the purposes of having a president who is accountable to the law that would immunize a sitting president from indictment. It was long assumed that although we didn't have presidents who had done things that would merit indictment, that if they did, they could be indicted. Everyone, I think, would have said, if the only remedy is a political one, if the only remedy is getting enough members of the House of Representatives to impeach and two-thirds of the Senate to convict, then, among other things, a president who was sufficiently criminal to basically bribe enough members of the House and Senate would be wholly unaccountable to the law. A president who decided to hold on to office indefinitely and refused to leave office, but who paid off enough members of the House and Senate couldn't be effectively removed politically. We've got to have a legal process. 
The only argument to the contrary is that a president might be too busy with executive time and golf playing and so on to <laughs> stand for trial. Uh, but that's and Twitter. About, you know, but that, that's about as persuasive as it sounds. There is a theoretical argument, which is the president is the executive branch. The Attorney General of the United States works for the president. He serves or she serves at the president's pleasure. How can your alter ego, as it were, prosecute you? But we've gotten over theoretical conundra, or is it conundrums? Conundra something. We've gotten over puzzles before. We don't have to, if we're going to have an operating government, worry about the theoretical oddity of a president's Justice Department indicting that president. The question really is, would it be such a profound interference with the performance of the job, not necessarily because of the number of hours it would take, but because of the cloud it would put over the presidency, that somehow, and a lot of people reach this conclusion, that somehow it just shouldn't happen. Now, the Office of Legal Counsel wrote a memorandum reaching that conclusion as a matter of policy in 1973. But those of you who were watching one of the really great Rachel Maddow shows will know that that was almost an accidental memo. It was really designed to prove that a sitting vice president like Agnew could be indicted. And the thought was it would be more persuasive if the president were contrasted with the vice president. So as a kind of aside, they said, of course, the president can't be. But within a year or so, the Justice Department changed its own view in a brief it submitted to the Supreme Court. There's nothing in that memorandum that is binding, that is even terribly persuasive, at least in my view. And yet, it has become such conventional wisdom that it's really a matter of tilting against windmills. I do it on my Twitter account. There are a lot of windmills I tilt against on that Twitter account. But I don't think there's any realistic prospect that either Mueller or the Southern District will indict this president. They might name him an unindicted co-conspirator, as has already essentially happened in terms of who directed the payments, the hush money payments, that were not only violations of federal election campaign laws, but that really were part of a conspiracy against the United States to fool the American public at a critical time after the Access Hollywood tape had been released. It seems to me that it just isn't likely to happen. And in a world that is beset by so many problems to which there might actually be solutions, to spend an awful lot of time on hopeless and quixotic searches is just not, you know, it's not justifiable. So I occasionally explain why I think it's just a terrible thing that a sitting president can't be indicted, and why when this is behind us, if and when, as I hope it will someday be, then we should look at that policy afresh. Can't likely look at it with fresh eyes right now, because everyone knows whose ox would be gored uh, by a decision that a sitting president can be indicted. So. Um, you think that a sitting president? Uh, there's no reason why a sitting president can't be indicted. In fact, the notion that he can't that the notion that he can't be indicted is in itself unconstitutional in some way because um, it puts him above the law. Yeah. And could I just add a word to that? I mean, it puts him above the law, despite what people say. Well, he could also, you know, he could be indicted after he leaves. Well, a he might not leave, and b after he leaves, the statute of limitations might have run, and c he could easily arrange that the vice president who ran with him 
would simply pardon him at the last minute if he leaves just before the term is over. And just as Ford pardoned Nixon, Pence could pardon Trump. And so he might get away with it forever. So, yeah, again, you have this view. The second president uh, theoretically can't, could be indicted. This president might, he might make the argument that he should be, but you think it will never happen. So let me extend from there to the next phase, again, a very practical matter before us. The Mueller investigation is going to wrap up at some point. We don't really know exactly when, but at some point. Uh, a report will be written according to the <coughs> guidelines under which that uh, independent counsel is operating. A report will be written. It will be submitted to the Justice Department. Uh, we have had we had Rod Rosenstein earlier this week uh, say, uh, you know, uh, there's a very good principle that we should not be putting out information uh, about people who've been investigated, but for whom there has been there's going to be no indictment. If we decline to indict someone, we should not smear their reputation. In fact, this argument was made by many Democrats who were very angry at Jim Comey back in 2016 when he decided to put out information, negative information about Hillary Clinton, despite declining to. Mm -hmm. recommend an indictment. So, if it is the case that the, that there's the president, we're, we're in a world where the president cannot be indicted, uh, let's imagine that the, that the Mueller report is handed in. One of two things seem to be the case here. Either uh, the, 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 the report would say that the president um, should be indicted, but that's not going to happen because of the policy. Or it's going to say that he shouldn't be indicted, in which case the Justice Department would not make the report known to the public. In either one of those cases, under this theory that you're advancing, there's a perfectly plausible case that we will never get to see the Mueller report. True or false? Well, I think that one is false. Because I do think that although, even when he testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee in his confirmation hearing, Bill Barr recited that kind of catechism saying, we don't want to smear someone's name. If we decide not to indict them, technically that's called a declination decision. And therefore, I'm not at all sure that if there is no indictment of the president, that the public should see all the underlying negative evidence and findings. And he made reference to the way Comey got into hot water by violating that principle. But there was a big difference. Hillary Clinton was not a sitting president. She could be indicted. And the idea that a prosecutorial arm of the Department of Justice should feel free to smear someone and ruin their name and then not give them a chance to clear themselves at a trial after indicting them, that's pretty terrible. And it makes sense to have that policy. But when the reason you don't indict someone is that you think you don't have the power to and that the only remedy is for the House of Representatives to consider impeachment and the Senate to hold a trial and consider conviction, then, of course, it follows that you have to make that information public. That's an argument that Adam Schiff, who was, by the way, also a former student of mine, um, Adam Schiff has been making that argument very persuasively. And if he doesn't persuade Mueller, and if he doesn't persuade Barr, he will subpoena the relevant information in the report. And I think the odds are very good that that subpoena will be enforceable. So that's one where I think both theory and practice point in a direction which allows the American people to see the truth. And that's, to my mind, the most important thing that's going forward. Whether you call it impeachment hearings, whether you call it a fact-finding investigation, there are going to be hearings in at least five different House committees and the Senate 
despite its Republican control, is going to be holding hearings as well. And there's at least some degree of bipartisanship in the Senate Intelligence Committee. And those hearings will churn up a lot of information. And we can hope that that information will sink in and make a difference in popular opinion. I mean, ever since Trump was president, remarkably, 40% of the people, give or take a percentage point, have favored his impeachment. Think about I bet it. That percentage is higher in this room. I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty high number, yeah. but it's not a high enough number to remove a president. Well, this is, but this gets to a, a question that I do want to ask you. I will say, never let it be said that Larry Tribe is not above playing to the crowd. You will proudly cite Barack Obama and Adam Schiff as your students, but I would guess you will not Ted quite Cruz, as proudly. I admit it. You will not quite proud as proudly cite Ted I, Cruz or John Roberts. Um, no, I'm actually proud of John Roberts. Not of Ted Cruz. I think John Roberts is one of the few things that's holding back the apocalypse. It, it, Please, it, expand on that. Well, it, just the other day, he cast the decisive vote to spare the life of an Alabama inmate whom the facts clearly established was so demented that he couldn't understand what the state was doing to him or why. And Justice Kagan made a very powerful argument that ultimately carried the day with Roberts, but not with Alito or Thomas or Gorsuch. And I think Kavanaugh sat it out. Um, a powerful argument that it is cruel and unusual punishment to put someone to death for something that he can't rationally remember or understand. John Roberts was decisive in that. John Roberts was also decisive in preventing the immediate enforcement of a Louisiana law that would have shut down essentially all abortion access in the state of Louisiana. That was one where Kavanaugh did not sit it out and unfortunately, though not unpredictably, voted with Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas. He, by the way, had a really, let me just call it bizarre theory. The bizarre theory was we trust the state of Louisiana not to enforce its laws against women seeking abortions. <laughs> and if it does enforce those laws, then we'll at least learn something. Using the women of Alabama basically as guinea pigs in an unethical human experiment. Now, I actually knew and liked Kavanaugh as a colleague of mine at Harvard. He taught there from time to time. But the Brett Kavanaugh we saw on the afternoon of that hearing is not the guy I thought I knew. Let, let me come back to, to the impeachment thing just yep. to, put a, to put a button on this because you've written a book about it. Um, you, you clearly think it's a legitimate, uh, this legitimate thing that exists and as a political remedy for uh, defects of a president of certain kinds that are grave, certainly for high crimes and misdemeanors. And yet you've been writing of late that you think the American public is too obsessed with, the, with impeachment. So just explain why it is you think, though it's totally legitimate, valid, and may apply to Donald Trump, why we're all too focused on it right now. Well, I think putting everything within the frame of reference of whether we, you know, like when you drive into the country and you've got a little kid, are we there yet, mom? Are we there yet, dad? Are we at impeachment yet? That's what the country has begun saying. And so some terrible thing emerges about what Trump has done, the way he's mistreating people at the border, what he's doing to asylum seekers, um, how he's kissing up to the butcher of North Korea or the butcher of the Kremlin. These are horrible things. But we ought to be able to condemn them as horrible and keep them in mind and criticize them and hold the president accountable for them politically and otherwise without asking, well, is that going to be a high crime and misdemeanor? Is that impeachable? It seems to me when we filter 
so much through the impeachment lens, we really flatten our discourse. And to the extent that our current problems are themselves the reflection of such hyper-partisan division th that in places less polite than this room, for one person to say, well, I was for Trump, would lead to a kind of nasty response. That's terrible. I mean, I find it terrible that I can't find enough students at Harvard who are pro-Trump to have a meaningful dialogue in a seminar. The country is now so deeply divided that people are more upset when their kids date someone from the other party <laughs> than they are when their kids date outside their race or their religion, which used to be verboten. Um, so it seems to me, in that sense, we've got too much impeachment talk. Let the facts come out. Let the truth come out. Hope that with enough persuasion and with enough intelligence, we can change enough minds so that that 40 will grow to 60, so that enough people will feel that the threat posed by this president warrants the convulsive, divisive, overwhelmingly all-consuming impeachment process. And we shouldn't underestimate how divisive it would be. I mean, just, you know, picture John Roberts coming into the Senate chamber in his robes and convening the grand inquest of the nation to put Donald Trump on trial while Roger Stone and others are saying, if you remove this guy, there'll be blood in the streets. It'll be another revolution. I mean, we can't give them a heckler's veto. We can't let them suspend the rule of law by threatening violence. But on the other hand, if we're going to be realistic, we can't close our eyes to the fact that a lot of the people who would be most convinced that removing this president would be simply expressing buyer's remorse and redoing the 2016 election, that enough of those people are going to be very vocal and they will be encouraged by a president who, as we have seen, sadly, encourages and foments violence and they will be armed as well as, as upset. On, we on have the, to take that into account. On the basis of what you know, everything you know about the new attorney general, do you have faith in him uh, as an institutionalist and someone who will uphold the rule of law? Not very much. I mean, I, I have worked with him on cases. He is a good lawyer. But his job application, his unsolicited memorandum to the Department of Justice, essentially advertising how the president could count on him to be against investigating or prosecuting or indicting a sitting president, very much like what led the president to choose Kavanaugh over a lot of the other conservatives that had been vetted and approved by the Federalist Society. It was a very Kavanaugh-like statement. Leads me to feel very doubtful, and certainly there was nothing in his testimony that gave much assurance, but on the other hand, I think with the House in democratic control, and with the subpoena power, the political winds have turned. If he thought he could get away with bottling up the report, that there w wouldn't be a massive public demand to know all of the details of what both the Southern District and the Office of Special Counsel have discovered, then maybe he would be inclined to do that. But I think he realizes even if he doesn't care, as I kind of hope he does, what his long-run legacy will be. How is he remembered? Is he remembered as just another apparatchik who was an operative and, and a kind of 
political hack who helped preserve this presidency, or does he want to be remembered as at least something of a hero? I have a feeling that maybe there's a little of the latter in him. And certainly when I dealt with him, I thought I was dealing with an honorable man. Uh, there, we could talk literally about the impeachment and the, the impeachment questions related to obstruction of justice and, and in conspiracy slash collusion all night. And I think before we finish, we are going to do some Q&A here. So if people want to come back to that, we can obviously do that. I want to talk to you about some other things related to the administration because there are just so many aspects that are controversial, scandalous, criminal, or just plain stinky. That um, I, I, I want a term of art. A term of art. A stinky one. But, but to me, the one maybe the one that stinks the most, and the one that amazingly there's a weird inverse uh, correlation between the degree of stink and the degree of attention that it has gotten. But you were involved in uh, some matters related to it. Yeah. Uh, is the emoluments issue and the profiteering of the president and his family uh, from inside the White House? Right. Um, well, explain, first of all, the efforts you're making in that area, but, but secondly, why is it that something where, unlike Russian collusion, where the facts are in dispute, we are still investigating, we don't know things, the, the things the president is doing with his family to profit off the White House are not even in dispute. They are not in, they're not hidden. They are in plain sight, and yet there is no public outcry about this, and although there are some lawsuits proceeding, it is amazing to me how little attention and how little outrage uh, it has uh, right. generated given how explicit the Constitution is and the design of the framers and helps concern the framers were about this kind of behavior. Right. Well, first of all, one thing that I didn't include in my course either in the late 1980s or in the 1990s was the emoluments clauses because they were important. I knew that they were part of our history, that the framers of the Constitution were worried about presidents getting extra money in addition to their own compensation from parts of the US government or from the states. And so they wrote a prohibition on that, saying the president's salary can't be enhanced. And that can't be waived by Congress. That's the domestic emoluments clause. <coughs> they were really worried about the way foreign princes and foreign governments and foreign states can worm their way into American politics by lining of president's pockets or the pockets of his family the way the Saudi family basically fills up the Trump Hotel when it needs to rent space, the way people from Turkey help the president, the Turkish government with respect to the Trump Tower, Istanbul, you can go down the list. That is, there are various violations of the Foreign Emoluments Clause, which is quite different. It's one that says that no officer of the United States, and there are some weirdos who argue that it, an officer of the United States does not include the president. <laughs> but for their, to their credit, the Trump lawyers haven't really made that argument, though they've put in footnotes saying maybe, maybe the president is exempt. But basically, everyone agrees that the president, who was the main concern of that clause, can't receive financial benefits from foreign governments without the permission of Congress. But Congress could give permission. Needless to say, it hasn't. Needless to say, Congress passes the book, buck. People who want Congress to affirmatively prohibit what the president is doing are met with silence saying, well, let the courts speak. And so from the very beginning of the administration, I've tried to help the courts speak. That is, I've helped design three lawsuits against the president of the United States in his official capacity 
one in the District of Columbia, in which the lawsuit is brought by Senator Blumenthal and a whole bunch of other members of the House and Senate, one in the District Court for the District of Maryland, in which the Attorney General of Maryland on behalf of the State of Maryland and the Attorney General of Washington, D.C., on behalf of D.C., are suing, and one in the Southern District of New York, in which the group called Crew, Citizens for Responsible Ethics in Washington, uh, and a bunch of restaurant owners and a whole bunch of restaurant workers who are hurt by competition from the Trump properties are bringing lawsuits, and they've all been moving forward quite slowly. That is, there's going to be an argument later in March in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit in the case arising out of the suit by the Attorneys General. The district court in New York threw out the suit by the restaurant workers, but that's on appeal in the Second Circuit. That was argued in the fall, and I think we'll win a reversal in that case because they really are clearly among the people who are hurt and should have standing. Uh, and the third lawsuit is also percolating away. The, in the third case, the district court said that members of Congress do have standing, and the case is supposedly going forward. But anyway, these cases are moving. But John, your question is, why aren't people more outraged? You know, your guess is probably as good as mine, but I imagine it's because they think, well, we knew what we were getting when we elected this guy. We knew that he's in it for himself. We knew that he probably didn't expect to win the presidency, but was using it as a branding opportunity. That's what the Moscow Hotel project was all about. He was hoping if he lost to Hillary, and I'm pretty sure he thought he would until the last day, um, that he planned to earn a, you know, a, a complete really become rich as opposed to the way he was, which was basically in debt over his eyebrows. Um, and people basically thought, well, what else is new? Of course he's making money from the presidency. We knew that when we voted for him. Although I don't know if everybody who voted for him feels that way. Right. Uh, but right. that's, that's where we are. There's another uh, lawsuit that you're involved in, and this goes to an issue that, unlike the Emoluments Clause, is an issue on which uh, the Trump administration's policies have generated a huge amount of, uh, of outrage and controversy, uh, which is over the declaration of the national emergency right. uh, and the attempt to appropriate funds to go and build this border wall to uh, halt an emergency of which there is no empirical basis that it actually exists. You are involved in a lawsuit uh, that touches on El Paso, I believe. Right. There are a number of lawsuits. Talk a little bit about that lawsuit and what you think its prospects are, especially in the context to loop back to the discussion we started in on about uh, Chief Justice Roberts. The court is now very conservative and, and right. very deferential to executive power. It is not totally obvious to everyone that the court ultimately will be on the side of reason in this case. So talk about the, the suit itself and its prospect for success in the context of this court. Right. Well, Stuart Brand, um, Stuart Gerson, I'm sorry, Stuart Gerson, who was Assistant Attorney General in the George H.W. Bush administration and at one point was acting Attorney General, uh, and is solid conservative, and I are co-counsel on behalf of El Paso, arguing, first of all, that the president can't just take the power of the purse, which conservatives should agree belong belongs to Congress, and I think we may have a lot of agreement there, but the trouble is the National Emergency Powers Act essentially gave the power of the purse in substantial form to the president. It said if the president declares an emergency, 
And this president did, even though he kind of put his foot in his own mouth when he said, but I didn't need to do it. What kind of an emergency is that? But if the president declares an emergency, suddenly the lights go on in 130 different statutes and give the president authority to use those statutes which might otherwise not apply. The one that he's trying to use for most of the money for his wall uh, is a statute about military construction. It's triggered by this emergency. So even if we lose on the question of whether the president has essentially carte blanche to call something an emergency even when it isn't, even if we lose there, we have a very strong argument that Congress didn't, in any of these statutes, give the president the power to build a big wall. I mean, he's saying this is a military project. Why? Because I'm using the military to do it instead of engaging in actual military activities like housing for soldiers or building <coughs> tanks. And I think that a conservative court could well conclude, especially if the House and the Senate both override the president, they won't be able to get an, a veto-proof override. He'll veto, for the first time in his presidency, the votes of both the House and the Senate to override it. But the way the law is structured, McConnell won't be able to bottle it up in the Senate. He has to put it up to a vote. And so all senators will have to be on record as to whether they think this is an emergency. And we're arguing that not only is it not an emergency, but what he plans to do is not authorized by any statute, and it will injure El Paso, 800,000 citizens who don't want their community to be fenced off, not just by a fence, but by a huge wall of steel slats or concrete, and who have a concrete argument about how they'll be hurt. So I think that's the kind of thing where we can use the courts, uh, not necessarily with ultimate success, but at least to hold the president to account. And this time we may be successful. You, you mentioned Brett Kavanaugh a little bit earlier, and I, I wanted to return to that and to the court generally, but uh, to, to specifically to him, it's, it is amazing that only a few months ago, it's October, five months ago, we were in this giant, national, yeah. incredibly searing, wrenching argument uh, that revolved around issues not just of law and politics, but of gender and power. And, and, and it was why the, the issue for three weeks was so all-consuming, I think, for the country. And we still, at uh, this hour, the country still, you know, we don't know whether Judge Kavanaugh did some of the things he was accused of in a definitive way. People have very strong convictions, both pro and both, both belief and disbelief on the question. So I wanted to ask you, as you watch this, a number of related questions. One, what was your view about the, the, the central controversy? Did you believe uh, his accusers or did you believe him, number one? And number two, having seen his behavior, I know you, you alluded to it a second ago, but I wanted you to go a little deeper on this, having seen his behavior uh, in that, in that, that the particular, the final hearing uh, with uh, Dr. Blasey Ford, what did you make of the temperament and the partisanship on display there, and whether you thought or not that was disqualifying on the right. court? It is sort of a softball question. I know. I, I mean, know. I, I believe. Now I'm playing to the crowd. All right. I believe Dr. Ford. I don't think for a minute that she misidentified him because he was a friend of hers. Um, I didn't believe him. I didn't believe all his accusers. I mean, the, the ones that Michael Avenatti scraped up were pretty, pretty far out, the ones who said there were rape parties and so on. But it doesn't take all of them. But rather than being contrite and saying, you know, I was a kid, I liked beer. He did say, I like beer. Um, he basically toughed it out, pretended he ha 
hadn't done it, couldn't have done it, and then showed himself to be hyper-partisan and so out of control that even on standard judicial temperament grounds, I thought he ought not to be confirmed. And then when the kind of dog and pony show of a completely phony reinvestigation by the FBI failed to interview really the key people, it, it was disgusting. I, I don't think he should have been confirmed. But as with Clarence Thomas, who I think perjured himself uh, in order to become a Supreme Court justice, um, we're just going to have to make the best of it. I think it would be ridiculously searing to try to impeach him because he committed perjury in order to become a justice. It wouldn't work, first of all. There's no way it would work. And it would begin to drag the court into the political tar pit in a way that I think would undermine one of the few institutions that at least provides a partial guardrail. Because I don't think if we play constitutional hardball, that is, it would be permissible to impeach him for lying in order to become a justice. But what's permissible and what's sensible are two quite different things. Just like it would be permissible, as some of my colleagues want to do, if the Democrats take over the House, the Senate, and the presidency in 2020 to pack the court, to add some liberal justices to offset what we now have, keeping in mind that Ruth Ginsburg is not going to live forever, even though she looks like she might survive forever. Um, but I'm not in favor of court packing. That is a spiral that can just lead to more hardball all the way down. But there is, there is, as you know, there's no, there's no constitutional uh, mandate yeah. for there to be only seven justices on the court. Nine. Nine justices yeah. on the court. Why can we not go to 11? Yeah, there's no inherent reason, but the people who argue... I mean, it's, the reason I raise it is, yeah. we, in this Democratic primary, this is going to be among many litmus test issues. There are going to be a lot of Democratic candidates who are going to say yeah. 11, not just court packing, but expanding the, the total yeah. is the right is number. too small for a yeah. nation this big, 70 right. cases is too few. People are not going to take that seriously. They're going to, you know, they're going to say, you're just pretending. You're saying you want to expand the court because nine is too small. But you really want to pack the court in order to negate the effect of those conservative justices. It was bad enough for McConnell to do what he did to Garland. Now you're playing the same game, and then they'll play the same game. And in the end, everybody will be the loser. Now, somebody could respond to that by saying, those guys play hardball whether we do or not. We're not going to make them reasonable and moderate just by being reasonable and moderate ourselves. So I'm, you know, I, I certainly respect those who say we should, there should be tit for tat. But I just don't happen to be that way. But I, I keep seeing the Q&A. It's the Q&A sign, there, which I've been ignoring for a period of time. But I will now yield my time. And I'm going to, uh, is, is there a mic, or are we just going to have people yell out? There's a mic in the back. So. Can you pass that mic, the, that's the one, to the, whoever the closest person is to you back there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, take the mic. Go ahead, my colleague. And eventually make John sure to call, call on the Trump guy. Very proudly John's colleague tonight. Yeah. Um, professor, on the issue of collusion, I'm wondering, and this may be splitting hairs, but it's my understanding that there's no federal, federal statute that says collusion itself is a crime. And we have the president constantly saying, there's no collusion, there's no collusion. In part, is he correct that he cannot be found guilty of, of collusion 
And if that's the case, shouldn't we all be using different terminology in the media and elsewhere that obstruction of justice or what? I, I thought it was just something like an antitrust law. You can have a, a level of collusion. Right. Well, actually, Alexis, there are a couple of laws that use the word collusion. And most dictionaries treat collusion and conspiracy <laughs> as synonymous. And the fact that the crime that he may be guilty of in order, sort of, in, in seizing the presidency by various fraudulent mechanisms is the crime of conspiring against the United States. We might as well use the word conspiring. But the fact is he's not going to be indicted unless I'm making a mistake. And therefore the technical criminal meaning of the words collusion and conspiracy really shouldn't distract us. The fact is that a high crime and misdemeanor, despite the word crime, everybody, every legal scholar I know except for one, Alan Dershowitz, <laughs> argues that it needn't be a crime in order to be a high crime and misdemeanor. If a president says, I'm going to pardon all white Christians who've ever been convicted in the United States, that's not a crime. But it's so clear an abuse of the pardon power that it's an impeachable offense. If the president either secretly or out in the open, works with a hostile foreign power to take over the White House in ways that the voters are not fully aware of until after he's seized it. Whether you call that collusion or conspiracy, it is a high crime and misdemeanor of the worst imaginable kind. So what I would hope that journalists do is be self-conscious that when they use the word collusion, they're kind of inviting a rote response saying there's no crime of collusion, but be aware that it doesn't have to be a federal crime to be an impeachable offense. The president said, I'm going to spend the rest of my term with, with my favorite prince, Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. See you later. That wouldn't be a crime, but it would sure be a basis for removing him from office.